This is KMTT, and today is Thursday. Every Thursday, Shiro in the Megillot, and now Dr. Yael Ziegler, who will be giving the Shiro in Megillat Rot. Hi, I'm Yael Ziegler, and I will be giving today the second part in our series on Megillat Rot um, in preparation for Chag Shavuot. My question that I want to deal with today, and if you recall from last time, I had mentioned that we'll be uh, less dealing with Megillat Rut directly, except perhaps in the in the last shiur, um, and and more trying to explore the context of Megillat Rut. Um, last time we spoke a little bit about the context of Malchut, how uh, the Tanakh, how the Tanakh perceives Malchut, and how Megillat Rut serves as a solution to the problem of Malchut, as is reflected in the tension between uh, Devarim Yud Zayin and Shmuel Aleph Parachet, for example. Uh, today I want to deal with a, a, a separate question, and that question relates to the very first words of Megillat Rut, Vahibi Meshvot HaShoftim. Um, Megillat Rut is one of the one of the books of Ketuvim, um, and yet it is placed squarely within the chronology of Nevi'im Rishonim. In fact, we know when Megillat Rut takes place. We don't know exactly when it takes place. Of course, Sefer Shoftim is a very long time period, uh, but we know that it takes place in Sefer Shoftim, which of course leads us to the very obvious question. If, in fact, this book takes place during the period of the Shoftim, why is it not in Sefer Shoftim? Sefer Shoftim, of course, is a series of short, self-contained stories, among which Rut could have been placed. She could have been placed between Devorah and Gid'on, for example. She could have been placed between Gid'on and Iftach. She could have been placed, or this, this Megillah could have been placed between um, uh, Iftach and Shimshon. There are s- m- many different ways to place Megillah root within Sefer Shoftim without actually interrupting the continuum of the story. Um, so we have this story that takes place during this time period, but actually doesn't appear in the book. And, and this, I think, is a very important question. And in examining this question, I think that we're going to arrive at a deeper understanding. I hope that we're going to arrive at a deeper understanding of Mikilat Root. Um, now, I think we'll begin with the short answer, the obvious answer, and that is that the first thing there is to say is is that these are two totally different stories. Um, they are the antithesis one of the other. If Sefer Shoftim uh, follows a downward, spiraling, downward, deteriorating trajectory leading to chaos, Mikilat Root is a completely different kind of book. It is a book about harmony, about order, about kindness. We mentioned last time kindness between people. Um, and perhaps the the um, the idea that brings this most to home, the the difference between these two books, is the very last pasuk. The very last pasuk of Sefer Shoftim is Bayamim Haheim Ein Melech Bisrael. This is, of course, a phrase that repeats itself throughout the final five chapters of Sefer Shoftim. And it means in those days there was no king in Israel. Each man did what was right in his eyes. And this is a description of chaos. It's a description, ultimately, we're going to see. It's a description of social chaos. It's a description of religious chaos. It's a description of, um, of, of a society which doesn't work because there is no king. And we get out of course, ends with the words Vishai Holid et David, and Ishai gave birth to David, which of course leads us is is a lead-in for a period of harmony of order, which is 
which is brought about because of the Davidic dynasty, because we have a king. So Megillat Rut leads us to kingship, and Sefer Shoftim leads us away from kingship. And in, in this way, we immediately see that Megillat Rut isn't just too different, uh, so different from Sefer Shoftim that it can't be placed in Sefer Shoftim, but I would even put it a little bit differently. I would say Megillat Rut is the exact opposite direction of Sefer Shoftim. Sefer Shoftim, we mentioned, follows a downward trajectory. Megillat Rut follows an upward trajectory. It's bringing us to a period of chaos and order, now, especially because Megillat Rut should be read uh, with the background of Sefer Shoftim. This is really very significant. Um, in order to really understand this a little bit more deeply, I want to begin by offering an overview of Sefer Shoftim uh, in order to understand its problems. Now, this is a very difficult thing to do. Of course, Sefer Shoftim is a very complex book. It's 21 chapters long. It has some very important characters, some extremely important stories. And, of course, it's going to be very difficult to give an, o- an overview. But I, I think I think that it's, uh, in the end, very important to do so in order to understand Megillat Rut. Uh, let's start with the basic problem of Sefer Shoftim, and that is a problem of leadership. We already see this in the very first Pasuk. This, of course, is the theme of, I would say, Nevi'im Rishonim in general. It's a theme of, of leadership. It's a question of searching for the best form of leadership for the Jewish people in their um, in their new position as, in, this, in, in the land of Israel, as a nation who is independent in the land of Israel. The Sefer Shoftim begins with the death of Yoshua. And immediately following the death of Yoshua, B'nai Israel turn to Hashem and ask him the question, who will lead us against the Kananim? Batchila, I want to understand as first, in a leadership position. Who is going to lead us into battle with the Kananim in order to fight them? Right? And God says, Yehuda, Yehuda will lead you into battle. Now, this question and answer itself, I think, is worthy of, of note. Of course, God does not mention a specific person. Following the death of Yoshua, Yoshua, of course, is the leader that takes over for Moshe, we, we expect, we assume that there's going to be another central charismatic personality who's going to lead Am Yisrael at this time. And of course, that is not the case. Yoshua himself does not appoint a leader, which is also an important question. Um, and and even God does not appoint a leader. When the people ask the question, who's going to lead us now, now that Yoshua is dead, God offers a tribe. And I've always understood this question as, or this answer of God as an answer that is hinting to the people that now is the time to set up the Davidic dynasty. Now is the time to set up the Judean monarchy, right? God does not name a person because, in fact, it's the tribe, the tribe who has been designated for kingship, who is now being chosen to take over for Yehuda. Now, of course, whatever else uh, uh, happens in the in the continuation of Sefer Shoftim, we know it doesn't happen, and that is they do not set up a kingship. I'm not going to today examine the question of why B'nai Israel do not set up a kingship at this point. I do think that it's worthy of note that later on, at the end of the book, and we know the book ends with a terrible situation of devastating civil war, a war between Shevet Binyamin, between the tribe of Benjamin and all of the other tribes, and in the course of this war, in Perak Kaf, in chapter 20, verse 18, again, Am Yisrael turned to God with a very similar question, a question that echoes our original question in Sefer Shoftim, in Pasuk Aleph of Sefer Shoftim, they uh, turned to God, Vayomru B'nai Yisrael, 
אומר, מי יעלה לנו ותחילה למלחמה עם בני בנימין? Who will lead us into battle with the sons of Benjamin? And here God says, ויאמר השם, יהודה ותחילה. It is Yehuda who will lead you. There's almost an I told you so moment here, right? God almost seems to be saying to the people, do you want to know what got you into this mess? It's because you didn't listen to me from the very beginning. In the beginning I told you, it's time now for a monarchy. All of this has taken place because there was not good leadership at this time. I wanted you to set up the Judean monarchy and you didn't do so. And that's what's led you to this terrible situation of leaderlessness during a period and, of course, uh, during a period of civil war. And, of course, this is what has led you to the civil war to begin with. And so... Really, I think the first problem in Sefer Shoftim is a problem of leadership. Now, if I had a blackboard in front of me, which I do not, um, I, would, I would draw for you a triangle. And at the top of the triangle, I would write leadership. The problem of Sefer Shoftim is leadership. And this, this problem of leadership really goes in two different directions or really has two serious consequences. One is in the area of Ben Adam L'Chavero. In other words, the problem of leadership, the lack of leadership leads to a societal problem, a social problem. And of course, at the other end of the triangle, I would write bin Adam Lamakom. The lack of leadership also has religious consequences. It also has detrimental religious consequences because, of course, without a good, strong leader, the people are going to begin to deteriorate, not just socially, not just in terms of interpersonal relations, but also religiously in terms of their relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. And really, I think if you offer any sort of overview of Um, Sefer Shoftim, you're going to see that these three problems are the interconnected problems in Sefer Shoftim. The problem of leadership, the deterioration of the leader, both in terms of his ability to affect any sort of military, um, military success, any sort of military victory, and in terms of his ability to lead the people religiously and socially, what we see is a deteriorating movement. We begin, and I'll only touch upon the main Shoftim. We know that there are 12 Shoftim, six major Shoftim, six what we call minor Shoftim. They're only minor because we have one or two or three Psukim that describe them. But the six major Shoftim, I think, really encapsulate or really reflect um, this deterioration. We begin, of course, with Otniel. Otniel is uh, an extreme Extraordinary, an extraordinarily successful leader. He leads the people against, in their war against Kushan Rishatayim, Melech Aram Naharayim, which means that even though he is from Shevet Yudah, and that's interesting, that's perhaps accounts for part of his success, even though he's from Shevet Yudah, he goes all the way north to fight against Kushan Rishatayim, thereby indicating that he has a very broad sphere of influence. He seems to be also quite successful religiously. And of course, we're told that after uh, his success, the land is quiet for 40 years. In other words, his full 40 years, which is, of course, we know a generation, the full generation um, of, of Otniel's rule is, in fact, successful. After Otniel, we have Ehud. And Ehud, already we begin, um, uh, Ehud is certainly a good uh, shofet, but already we begin to see a problem. The story itself is extremely violent, 
And um, this story is already beginning to plant the seeds of the eventual deterioration. I, I don't think it's it, here we see so much a problem with the leader himself, not religiously and not socially, but the violence in the story is uh, going to lead us or in, in or starting to lead us in a negative direction. In any case, um, as part of the problem of an overview is that I can't go too deeply into that. Um, after Ehud, we get to Dvorah. And already in the story of Dvorah, we have a sense that things are not as they should be. Um, not that I have anything against a woman being a leader, but the very fact that a woman is chosen as a leader in this time suggests that, in fact, there is no one who is capable of being a leader within the male population. Uh, now, this seems, in fact, to be indicated by uh, her conversation, by Dvorah's conversation with Barak ben Avinoam, when she asks him to come to war, or she really actually demands that he come to war. Hello, Tziva Hashem, okay, Israel, has not God commanded you? And she tells him that, in fact, she is promising him a divine victory. And Barak's response to her is, Im Vim lo if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. And here we already get a sense of the conditional loyalty of Barak ben Avinoam. Now, um, this already gives us a sense of why Dvorah is chosen as leader. And of course, her limitations as leader are made obvious by her own feeling that she has to send for someone else to go to war. Of course, it has always been, until now, the Shofet's job to lead the people into war. She feels that she cannot do this, and so she calls for Barak to accompany her to war. Now, Chazal also begin to question Dvorah's own personal righteousness. They, of course, uh, indicate that she has a hateful name. They are uh, not entirely pleased with her uh, certain words in her shira. They accuse her of a certain amount of arrogance. In any case, though, we have a sense that there's a downward movement in the choice of leader. The minute that we leave Utniel, the minute that we leave the Judean leader and we move to other tribes, um, there is a sense of deterioration. Now, once we get to Gideon, who is the next major figure on the Shoftim scene, we are, um, we're really, I think, here beginning to get a sense that things are really um, going downhill, both religiously and socially for this leader. The first thing that I think that we have to note is that when the Malach Hashem comes to Gid'on and he says to him, Hashem imcha gibor hechayel, God is with you, man of valor, right? And Gid'on's response is a caustic response. Be Adoni, please my master, v'yesh Hashem imanu? Is God really with us? V'lama mitza'atnu kolzot? Why has all this happened to us? Where are all of his wonders that our forefathers told us when they said that God took us out of Egypt? Now God has forsaken us and given us into the hands of Midian. This response is very troubling, right? Now, of course, uh, the, the story continues with Gidon's 
repeated requests for signs for Otod. Even when he gets a sign from God, he asks for another sign. And finally, even despite the fact that he actually does win this incredible military vac- uh, uh, victory with, of course, a little bit of, of uh, pushing from God to make this, this military victory one that clearly reflects God's glory. Well, Gidon sends the people into war with the words, La Hashem Gidon. Go out with the battle cry for God, but also for Gidon. And of course, the story ends with Gidon making a, a, what seems to be a terrible mistake. He takes the spoils of war and he makes it into an aphod, which seems to cause Am Yisrael to worship it. Vayiznu chol Yisrael acharav. Am Yisrael arzonima acharav. This is a word that is used for avodah zarah. The, the, the story of Gideon seems to suggest a religious and, and um, leadership deterioration here. Um, I think not much has to be said about the next Shofet, Yiftach. Yiftach makes a neder, the neder, the, the vow, right? We know Je- uh, Jephthah's vow, uh, which seems to uh, certainly um, have a problematic aspect to it. Chazal are very concerned about this vow, and of course it leads to um, his daughter coming out to meet him, and whether there's a sacrifice of his daughter or there's not a sacrifice, it's already a machloket, a controversy, but in any case, he does somehow have to sacrifice his daughter on the altar of this misspoken vow. Um, the next, and of course, the story of Yiftach ends with a terrible civil war, which is, of course, an indication that Yiftach is a failed leader. I, I forgot to mention with Gidon that there are also some very troubling leadership moments socially with Gidon's leadership. Uh, perhaps we'll even go one step back and say the social problems begin really not with Ehud's leadership, but with Dvorah's leadership. Because Dvorah, as we know from her Shira, calls some of the tribes who don't listen to her who don't come. Um, Gideon also has certain troubling moments socially when he is running after Zevach and Salmunah, who are the two kings of Midian that have run away and ultimately will determine the success of his battle. He, um, he his, his people become very fatigued and very hungry. And he passes by two Jewish cities, Sukkot and and Penuel, and he asks them, can you give some food to my men? We are fighting a battle on your behalf. We are fighting for Am Yisrael. And the men refuse to give him food in both of these cities. And of course, on his way back, he punishes the men, both of Sukkot and Penuel. And so there is here a sense that things are socially beginning to fall apart. The fact that the people of Sukkot and Penuel do not give food to Gidon's warring soldiers suggests, in fact, that they don't regard Gidon as being their representative. They don't regard this army as doing something on their behalf, which is, of course, seems to indicate a, a social breakdown. And moving on, or back to Yiftach, the end of the story of Yiftach ends with a terrible civil war of its own. Not just a terrible civil war, 42,000 people dead. That's a tremendous uh, tragedy. It's a catastrophe for, uh, for Am Yisrael. And I would say it suggests that Yiftach as a leader 
is even less successful than than his predecessor. Uh, and all of this really leads us to our last um, uh, Shofet, uh, Shimshon, for whom we have very high hopes. Of course, um, we have this incredible story of his birth in which a Malach Hashem comes and makes him a Nazir from conception. He is a Nazirite. His mother can't even drink wine. He is uh, from utero, already designated for spiritual Greatness, which is meant, of course, to aid him and assist him in his quest for successful leadership. Now, this itself does not seem to pan out. Um, Shimshon never quite recognizes his Nizirut. Most of the stories of Shimshon involve um, stories of his different adventures with women. Um, and he never quite leads the people. If anything, what we see with Shimshon is a certain amount of tension between him and the people. At one point, the people come to Shimshon when he's hiding from one of his acts of personal vengeance, not national victory, but personal vengeance against the Plishtim. And the people say to Shimshon, Hello, don't you know that the Plishtim are ruling this, are ruling us? What are you doing to us? In other words, there doesn't seem to be a real sense here that it is Shimshon who is leading the people into battle. This really is um, a, a certain overview of the deterioration of leadership in Sefer Shoftim. Of course, after the, um, the, the period of Shimshon's rule, there is no more Shofet. There is no more leader in Israel. And that leads us into the final five chaotic chapters of Sefer Shoftim, chapters that are marked, as I said before, by the phrase, by Amimahim, Ein Melech Yisrael, There's no king. There's also no leader. Not only is there no leader, but in those final five chapters, all of the people who appear are people who are from um uh, tribes of leadership. We have an Ishlevi twice. We have Beit Lechem and Har Ephraim. So what we have in both of the final stories of Sefer Shoftim is a Levite man who wanders back and forth between the two cities or the two areas from where leadership traditionally comes. Beit Lechem, which of course produces the Davidic dynasty, and Har Ephraim, which produces the alternative leadership, that is the leadership of Bnei Yosef. However, ironically, of course, this Levite man who wanders between Beit Lechem and Har Ephraim cannot find a leader. He himself doesn't act quite like a Levite who is supposed to be itinerant, who is supposed to be wandering in order be, really to teach the people um, uh, religious precepts and to... Um, and to be a spiritual leader, and he, and he, of course, does not act as a spiritual leader, just as we have no leader in these f- five final chapters of Sefer Shoftim. Now, alongside the breakdown of leadership in Sefer Shoftim, as I mentioned before, we have both religious deterioration and social deterioration. The religious deterioration finds several expressions. I'll mention them briefly. Number one, Avodah Zarah. Idolatry. There is more and more worship of idolatry. In Perak Bet, we have intimations of idolatry. We have, we're told that they worship idols. In Perak Vav, at the beginning of chapter 6, we have a longer list. And of course, in Perak Yud, in chapter 10, there's a very long, extensive list, list of all of the idolatry that is going on, where we're told in verse 6 of chapter 10, 
ואת אלוהי צידון, ואת אלוהי מואב, ואת אלוהי בני עמון, ואת אלוהי פלישתים, ויעזבו את השם ולא עבדוהו. It's a very extensive, long פסוק, long verse, describing all of the idolatry that's going on. Of course, we also have several uh, stories of idolatry. I mentioned before the ephod that Gidon makes. I'll also mention here the pesel that is made by Micha. Uh, that's in chapter 17. Now, alongside the worship of idols, we also have Uh, the breaking of the covenant, which is mentioned several times. Am Yisrael has broken the covenant between themselves and God. This also is part of the worship of idols that is going on in this, uh, in this book that seems to increasingly present as the book progresses. Um, there is, there are almost no mitzvot in this book, which again, you know, I'm not making an argumentum ad silentum. We're not necessarily expecting to find, um, a tremendous amount of mitzvot, unless of course we contrast it to Migilat Rut, which we're about to do. There's no mitzvot. There's no ma'asim tovim. There's no kindness happening between man and his fellow man. That also relates also to the social deterioration. But perhaps most importantly, there's no mishkan. We know that the mishkan is in Shiloh at this time. Shiloh is the center of the country. In fact, Yoshua in chapter 18 of Sefer Yoshua moves the Mishkan from Gilgal, which seems to be at the, um, near Yericho, at the eastern uh, edge of the country, right? When they cross into the Jordan, there's Gilgal. And he moves it to a more central location. Why? Presumably so that it should be more accessible. And yet, in Sefer Shoftim, Nobody goes to Shiloh. In fact, the first mention that we have of Shiloh is at the end of chapter 18. Chapter 18, when we're, we only mention Shiloh sort of tangentially, where we're told uh, that where we're talking about Pesel Micha, about the idol that Micha made, and we're told that it was placed, the Pesel of, of, of Micha was placed with the Danim, right, with the, the, the tribe of Dan, All of the days that the the house of God was in Shiloh. It seems to be a very tangential reference, only mentioned because we're talking about an idol. Now, this point, I think, is most clearly felt in chapter 21 of Sefer Shoftim. In chapter 21, um, as a result of the civil war, the Benjamites, as we know, uh, didn't have anyone that they could marry because, of course, the people who went to war with the Benjamites had taken an oath not to give their, ch- not to give their daughters in marriage to the Benjamites. And And so they come up with this idea the Benjamites should go to Shiloh where the, the girls, the young women are dancing and they should come and sort of ambush these women and kidnap them. Now, I'll leave aside that story. It obviously deserves greater explanation. But what I wanted to point out here is that when the um, when, when B'nai Israel come up with this solution, they say, oh, the Benjamites should go to Shiloh. And then they offer a very long description of where Shiloh is. They say, oh, they should go to Shiloh. Asher mitzfona They tell you exactly where Beit El, where Shiloh is. And so much so that actually um, uh, in the 19th century, when British archaeologists came to the country to look for the different places, um, different biblical um, cities, they, they knew exactly where to look for Shiloh. And Shiloh was one of the first clearly identified cities um, that 
that, that, that they found because they knew exactly where to go. The directions are so explicit here in Sefer Shoftim. Uh, leaving that aside, though, the question, of course, is why do we need such explicit directions? The answer, of course, is because no one was going to Shiloh. The religious deterioration in Sefer Shoftim is also indicated by the fact that there is no Mishkan in Sefer Shoftim. So there's no Mishkan, there's no Mitzvot, there's increase in Avodah Zarah, there's the breaking of the covenant, which we see over and over, and all of this emanates to some extent from the deterioration of leadership that we noted previously. Now, social unity also begins to fall apart. We have a series of small civil wars, beginning with Gideon's interaction with the people of Sukkot and Penuel, continuing with Yiftach, and eventually culminating in a full-blown civil war in chapter 20. There's a sense that, um, that, that interpersonal relations are deteriorating also in a, in a smaller scale, people refuse to give each other food. There isn't a sense of gmilut chasadim, of helping one another. We see this very much, as we mentioned before, in the story of Gideon. We also see this in the final story of Pilegesh Begiv'ah, when there is a man, an Ish, uh, a Levi, who is traveling from Beit Lechem, where he went to get his Pilegesh, back to Har Ephraim, which is his home, and he stops in a Jewish city called Gid'ah and no one wants to take him home and no one wants to give him food and of course we have a catastrophic scene that is Sdom and Amora-like that results in that particular story. So what we have here, what I've tried to describe here is this sort of triangular structure of deterioration in Sefer Shoftim. It begins with leadership and it it, it devolves into two separate but obviously interrelated arenas, a social arena in which uh, there's there's a breakdown of social relations, there's a breakdown of a sense of unity, which also a sense of, of national unity. People don't regard themselves as belonging to each other. There's a sense of primary loyalties. I and my tribe against my country. I and my family against my tribe. I uh, against my family, right? There's a real sense here of primary loyalties um, and, and not a sense really of national cohesiveness which of course leads also not just to the not giving food and not doing nice things for each other but also to a civil war and also the lack of leadership leads us to this area to this religious deterioration which I described before. Now if I had time which I don't because I recognize that I only have uh, one minute left and I, I might actually take a few minutes left um, but that th- these areas of deterioration find perhaps the most um, extreme expression in the final five chapters of the book, where I mentioned there's no leader, right? And the refrain that occurs and recurs throughout those five chapters is, there is no leader at this time, there's no king at this time, and therefore there's utter chaos. But at the same time, what we see is a total breakdown of any sort of religious commitment. We have in these stories, uh, uh, Pesel Micha, we have a boy who steals from his mother in order to make an idol. We have here some attempt to to do kibush arts to conquer a land, but of course they go to this city called Laish, a city that is shoket and voteach, and most mafarshim think is not a city that is a um, Canaanite city, not a city that they are required to uh, conquer. So there is a perversion of kibush arts. But here in this section, we have the setting up of an idol, the setting up even of 
a mishkan. We have a levi being made into kohen, into a kohen. In short, we have a perversion of the religious ideal in this final section. Perhaps the area in which the breakdown is most seen in Sefer Shoftim is not just the leadership and not just the religious deterioration, but the social deterioration, which leads us to this terrible story of Pilagish Bigiva. I think most of us are familiar with this story. I think the most important thing that we can say about the story is, is that this story is the repeat of Stom and Amora. Am Yisrael has become Stom and Amora, which means that from a, um, from a social perspective, they are no longer a viable society. This is true also from a religious perspective. And this, of course, leads us into civil war. That's the end of Sefer Shoftim. Now, I want to suggest that Megillat Rud is not just in Sefer, not in Sefer Shoftim because because it's the opposite of Sefer Shoftim, um, but also that Megillat Rud is not in Sefer Shoftim because, as I mentioned last time, or I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but Megillat Rud is the solution for Sefer Shoftim. Megillat Rud is about finding leadership and finding people who have the qualities of leadership that are able to be a solution both for the social and the religious problems because they themselves embody the social and religious ideals that we are looking for for the society. And of course, uh, the two people that we focus on in Megillat Root, Root and Boaz, are both ideal people to become the paradigm of good leadership, leadership that can bring about a social, a certain uh, society which has attained a certain ideal level both socially and religiously. This is why, in my mind, Root is described both as such a kind person, a person of Gemil Chasadim, a person who gives food to the other, a person who displays loyalty to the other, and perhaps also why she is described not just by Chazal as the ideal convert, but also within the text itself. When she says to Naomi, I want to stay with you, she doesn't just say to her, I want to stay with you because I love you. Wherever you go, I will go. But she also says to her, your God is my God. And also when Boaz describes Ruth, he describes her as someone who is Avraham-like. This we did mention last time. He says to her, he says to her, it has surely been told to me how you left your father's home, how you left your homeland, how you left everything behind. And that is very much an Abraham-like moment. So Ruth is being described as having as embodying a certain ideal as a person, both socially in terms of her interpersonal relations and religiously. And therefore, she becomes the one who can create leadership, which is, of course, the solution to Sefer Shoftim. It brings us back to the beginning of Sefer Shoftim, where God says, Yehuda Ya'aleh. It is Yehuda who will provide the leadership in the next generation. But, of course, Sefer Shoftim takes us too far away from the possibility of leadership, because as the leadership deteriorates in Sefer Shoftim, it becomes harder and harder to find a leader, um, harder and harder to find a leader who embodies 
qualities, the qualities that can bring about societal or social and religious perfection that we are searching for. Um, ultimately, I would say the same about Boaz. Uh, Boaz is both described as being an extraordinary person from a religious perspective. He is um, a very involved in all the mitzvot that happened in Migdal Rut. There are a lot of mitzvot in Migdal Rut. The, um, the mitzvot that are connected to giving to poor people in the field, the mitzvah of Geulah, both Geulat Karka, and presumably also the marriage of Rut. He is kind beyond um, uh, what we would expect of him. He's not just always giving food to the other, of course, in contrast to what happens in Sefer Shoftim, but he also cares about Ruth. He cares about her dignity. He cares about her self-respect. And of course, he has tremendous qualities of leadership. Everyone listens to Boaz. Boaz has that Shevet Yehuda quality, that Judean tribe quality, where when he speaks, he's able to rally everyone to listen, and he uses his leadership to help others. He uses his leadership to help Root. He uses his leadership to uh, teach people in Beit Lechem the way to do the mitzvot and the way to be kind to others. And what we have here, in my mind, is the story of how two individuals, Boaz and Root, by virtue of their personal character traits and their ability to embody certain character traits which are necessary for leadership, can turn around the entire time period of the Shoftim. While Sefer Shoftim ends by Amim Hain, Hahem Ein Melech B'Yisrael, Root ends with the promise of good leadership, the promise of the Davidic dynasty, the ability to produce an institution of leadership that is designed to correct all of the problems of Sefer Shoftim, beginning with leadership and devolving into both a religious um, uh, correction and a societal correction. This explains why Root and Shofti must be separate books. They record two opposite directions. They record a story of of uh, deteriorating leadership that leads to disloyalty, corruption, lack of religious integrity, selfishness, chaos, disorder, and ultimately the unraveling of the entire society, while Miguelat Root records a, a story of leaders of people who are kind and generous and have strength of character and religious integrity designed ultimately to provide for us the solution to Sefer Shoftim, order, stability, and a strong nation, all of which begins with the Davidic dynasty. Thank you.